0: Hello, welcome to the Double Double. My name is Kelly Hogan, and joining me, as always, from Middletown, Connecticut, David Dixon. David, what's up?
1: What's going on, Kelly? It's a nice, nice sunny day here in Connecticut for for a nice little change. It's been rainy, but now we get a little sun out, great NBA hoops on, it doesn't get much better.
0: You are right about that. So we're going to hit on all four conference semifinals today, but let's start out in the Bay, Golden State, and the Rockets, the story definitely after game one was the officiating, and then leading into game two was Scott Foster. He was going to be on the call of the game. He doesn't have a great relationship with the Rockets, with Chris Paul, with James Harden, and even some of the players on the Warriors he doesn't have the best relationship of. So just a lot was made of the officiating, David. What did you make of it?
1: I mean, of the officiating... It's kind of just what we've seen over the last few years, which is that the way that the Rockets and specifically James Harden plays is one of his best attributes is how he can draw fouls and get to the free throw line. And I guess since the beginning of the NBA, there's just less fouls called in the postseason. So naturally it would make sense that over 82 games with Harden and the whole team is used to a certain type of whistle that that whistle doesn't happen in the playoffs, they're going to be rightfully upset about it. And I think it's just a huge distraction, to be honest. The Rockets need to worry more about the Warriors and how to actually beat them than whether or not they're getting fouls called. Because, yes, if they were getting those free throws, it would definitely help them. But how about you guys focus on not turning the ball over so much? That's hurting you more than whatever whistle or not whistle you're getting from scott foster
0: yeah i agree with that i think i mean they lost the two games by a combined total of 10 points so these games were close and there's an argument to be made that if some of these fouls were called that the games might have gone in a different direction particularly game one but just just from a mathematical standpoint it is more efficient and effective to get fouled on a wide open or on a three-point shot attempt than a driving dunk because if you think about it, if someone shoots, let's say the average NBA free throw shooter shoots about 70%, which, I mean, I haven't looked it up, but that sounds about right, maybe even higher than that. If you shoot 70% on three attempts, that's your your points per possession would be like 2.1, right? 2.1 points. Whereas if you have a wide open dunk, you get two points. So just from a mathematical standpoint, the Rockets are ahead of the game in hunting these fouls. I know, you know, it's it's almost a letter of the law versus like a spirit of the law type of thing. Because, you know, by, by the letter of the law, the, I mean, in the, for the most part, a lot of those are fouls, but it's, it's more so that James Harden is looking for contact as opposed to trying to make the shot. And I think that's where it gets, you know, a little iffy from the referees perspective, because it's almost one of those things where are we going to reward him for six, I mean, cause he is, he he's drawing contact. He is drawing contact, But he's almost doing so in lieu of trying to make the shot.
1: Yeah, and, you know, that's definitely true. And when you talk about the referees and these games have been super close and if they had the whistles, maybe the Rockets might have won. But on the flip side, too, the Warriors were definitely getting fouled on times when the referees didn't call it either. and. So they probably are wish that they got more calls, and instead of being at ten points over these two games, it could have been twenty five if the Warriors got the calls that they all the calls that they thought that they deserved. So I think the the referee's impact is just a distraction for for both teams. They should be focusing on how to beat each other. And as you're saying, James Harden should be trying to make the shot and not necessarily always be trying to draw the contact because he's looking to get bailed out and. Everyone knows what he's trying to do now. So it's a lot harder to bait the officials into thinking that you're shooting when they know now that you're really looking for for the contact.
0: Yeah. And baiting the officials has basically become like a game within the game. Yeah. And so, so I've, I've tried to just, you know, just knowing we're doing this podcast, just think of ways to like disincentivize just fl- flopping because that's essentially what they're doing. They're flopping as they shoot the ball. And, you know, they do the yellow card in soccer. That's somewhat effective. You still see guys flailing in soccer, so I don't really know if that works. The hockey model, they have penalties for embellishment, where essentially if you try to sell a call to the referee and they feel you kind of, you know, if someone trips you and you just kind of flail a little bit, they will send you to the penalty box. What if the NBA, I mean, there's already so many reviews, so the last thing we'd want is more reviews. But what if you know there was a – I don't know if it's a technical, but in, in, in the same way there's a defensive three seconds where if you're camping out in the paint, the other team gets – they get to shoot a free throw and then retain possession. What if, you know, if you are blatantly trying to sell contact, the other team gets a free throw on the ball? Just something, just something like that to subdue this because this is – honestly
1: – I think that that would just be really, really hard – to prove. I, I understand what you're saying, but I think it will lead to even more controversy with the referees because then it'll be all about the judgment of the refs of is he embellishing, is he not? I think the personal relationships will get even more scrutiny as you're talking about Scott Foster not having the best relationship with the guys on the Rockets. I think then it's just gonna go for every guy. It's oh he gave he doesn't like this dude, so he's give so he gave him the embellishment and I think it'll just lead to more reviews and it'll just be way harder to prove. And I I don't want to talk about the referees anymore. I want to talk about one thing that I noticed leading up to this series and then what's actually happened. So leading up to it, we were guilty of this too. Everyone's talking about how the Rockets aren't afraid of the Warriors and how the Rockets had figured out how to beat the Warriors and that they really could do with their style of play. I think we all forgot that the Warriors also have played against the Rockets a lot and they know how to stop them. So it's really interesting watching the Warriors. The Warriors went with their best lineup. They said, we're going with the Hamptons five. And so for those who don't know, that's Steph Curry, Klay Thompson, Durant, Iguadala, and Green, which is their best five. And I think the best starting lineup or any lineup in the NBA. And they started that. And that th- those five, they said, we're going to go with our best five. And we know how to play against you. When, when you watch the way that they play defense, the way that they that they switch on the fly and double team and rotate they really have figured out how the Rockets play on offense
0: yeah I mean I think saying the Hamptons five is the best starting five in the NBA or the just the best five-man lineup in the NBA I don't think that's controversial at all I think that's you know more of a more of a fact than an opinion but what this series has shown to me we know Steph Curry has immense gravity just him being on the floor like radically changes defenses but I think when this game breaks down and gets to the half court, cause it's really not much of a, there's not much transition action. It's a lot of, you know, sets Kevin Durant is borderline unstoppable in the half court. There is not, you know, a lot like these days, a lot of people are trying to get rid of the mid range. It's either, you know, get to the rim, get to the free throw line or shoot threes. Kevin Durant can get to any spot on the floor, rise up, elevate and just his pure length and skill He's getting that shot off, and more times than not, it's going in.
1: I mean, he's the ultimate trump card. It is when things break down, and it's, as you're saying, in the half court, and there's six seconds left, and you just need someone to get a shot off. Every single time Kevin Durant shoots, it feels like a good shot because he's so much bigger than whoever's guarding him, and he's such a good shooter that it just feels like a really good shot every single time. And ever since he said... You know who I am. I'm Kevin Durant or whatever his quote was. The dude's been unstoppable. And I don't know what the Rockets can do when you have Durant playing like he's the best player in the world right now.
0: Yeah, he's in an absolute zone. The Rockets, I mean, just to be blunt, James Harden has to be better. He's, He's so inefficient right now. He... I mean, we talked about the foul hunting. He's just got to make smarter decisions. And whether that's sh- shoot these threes and try to make them and don't just flail around. And then the other thing I've noticed watching this series, Chris Paul, he he's still very good. He's still very cerebral, very smart. He makes good passes. He's definitely lost a step. Yeah. And that's something to keep an eye on. But they just need... A tertiary option on the wing, because I mean, Clint Capella, he's he's doing what he can. It's tough for a, a center to really be all that effective against Golden State. But he's playing but well. It, he's playing. He is playing well. He is playing well. But between Eric Gordon, Austin Rivers, I don't know Ugh. why I even want to trust Austin Rivers in a playoff series. But PJ Tucker, between some of those guys, some of them have to step up because right now there's too much on the plate of James Harden. They miraculous miraculously survived when he got poked in the eye the other night but
1: it was a little more than just poked in the eye
0: yeah no he was basically eye gouged (laughs) by draymond eye gouged him that's the other thing i wanted to say yeah draymond kind of you know petered out a little bit over the past two seasons i kind of have soured on him a little bit he's been incredible in this series just defensively his jump shot's always a little suspect but defensively in this series, I mean you could you can make the argument behind KD, he's been the most valuable warrior just from what he brings on the defensive end of the floor.
1: Yeah, he's been awesome. And I think I read some quote that basically someone asked why he's been so good the last two and a half months. And he said, I I just went on a diet. I started eating well. It's if that's really all it takes, then this dude is yeah. incredible. But he basically called himself fat last year, which I thought was funny. But, yeah. yeah. But so going back, you know, I totally agree with you with about the Rockets and their surrounding pieces. They they had a lineup in game two where it was Amon Shumpert, Austin Rivers, Kenneth Fareed, or I think Gerald Green. That is not a NBA contending lineup for a long period of time. And shockingly, they did not do well.
0: Well, Gerald Green just in game one – this dude played seven minutes and he was a minus sixteen. He he could have yeah, I mean, he could have sat down and played like patty cake on the side of the floor, and it would have been hard to repeat going minus sixteen in seven minutes of action.
1: I mean, so obviously Harden had to miss a lot of time because Draymond made both his eyes bleed in a quote unquote inadvertent play, and so but. Tony's trying to get something from the bench because last year they got nothing. So you can see Tony trying to adjust and just try to s- steal minutes from, from the bench and let Paul and Harden rest a little bit, and he can't. He just can't do it. So they have to ride those guys, and it's amazing going back to what you were saying about Durant. The last thing I want to say about Durant before we move on to the next series is Clay has a bad sprained ankle. That's what Steve Kerr said. Curry has a hurt ankle and dislocated his middle left finger so it's not on a shooting hand but it's still it was pretty gruesome when when you saw it so they're both kind of banged up and durant's taking over to the extent of if he keeps playing this well and they win the championship again can you really blame him for leaving like it's kind of like lebron last year where he dominates so much that you just kind of thank him and if he wants to move on hey he did everything he could for us so if so so if durant's going out this is the way to go out
0: yeah, and also just those string of injuries that you listed, that's why it hurt so much that the Rockets weren't able to take one of these games. They limited Clay, They limited Steph. I mean, they still put up numbers, but they just were not very efficient in doing so. It would have been great for Houston to steal one game in Golden State, but now they go home and the pressure is on in Game Three to really come out strong. And if if you if you lose Game Three and you go down three zero, especially to Golden State, it's curtains.
1: Yeah, it's over.
0: Let's move on. Blazers Nuggets. The in Game One, the Nuggets came out firing. It I mean against San Antonio, I felt like the Nuggets were a little skittish and not afraid of the moment, but they they just didn't play up to their standards that they set in the regular season. But they came out a blazing. In Game One, and then simmered off a little bit in Game Two, and Portland took that one on the road to take the series one-one, heading back to Portland. So, wh- what do you kind of make of this series so far, David?
1: I don't know what to make of it. To be honest, these teams look really evenly matched. The Blazers' guards, as we as we previewed this, are clearly the two. They they're way better than the Nuggets' guard, and Murray's really good, but. They just have such an advantage that when you saw, especially in game two, McCollum was able to really take over and just get to his spot and get really good shots off, especially late in in that game. And Lillard was off for most of the fourth quarter from from three, but you have to imagine that he's so good that he's going to get it going again. And I think just by the fact that this is really the Nuggets' first push in this late in the playoffs, that it's almost like you're, you're wondering when is, it gonna, when is the moment going to get too big for them? Because you felt it a little bit in the first round. That game seven was really up for the taking. The Spurs definitely could have stole that, that game and, and moved on. So it feels almost like is there a moment where during this series the, the lights are going to be too bright for them right now?
0: Yeah, I think that's definitely – they're such a young team that that should definitely be a concern – but I think I just think the Blazers are in a great spot. They they split 1-1. Game 1, I, I can't imagine the Nuggets having another performance in this series like game 1. And then the Blazers took game 2 in a game in which Damian Lillard, Lillard only had 14 points. So if you would have told me before the series, Dame is going to score 14 points and you know what's going to happen? I would say Blazers probably lose by 15 plus. And to get that win, especially being down 1-0, was huge. The other thing I want to say is, I mean, I said it before the series and we, you kind of just mentioned it, like Dame and CJ, they're kind of always grouped together. They, they are definitely the two best guards in this series, but to just group them together and I was guilty of it too, that's a disservice to Dame because Dame is so much better than CJ and everyone just kind of lumps them together as you know the two guards in Portland. Dame is levels above CJ McCollum. I mean, I, I wish Yusef Nurkic was was healthy just for the f- fact that he played for the Nuggets. It would create a little bit of you know heat, and uh, I mean Ennis Cantor is it's always fun when he's involved. But just having that plumly Nurkic dynamic would have been would have been interesting to watch. But the thing I'm keeping an eye on, Rodney Hood had a really good game last night. That 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 trio of Al Farouq Aminu, Mo, Mo Harkless, and Rodney Hood. If just one of those guys can add another scoring punch for Portland, I think they're going to be tough to beat, especially with the comfort that that Dame and CJ play with at home.
1: Yeah, speaking about Nurkic, the part that the area of concern I have from the Blazers coming out of Game Two is they really, really struggle to rebound the ball, especially in the fourth quarter. The Nuggets had more than fifteen offensive rebounds in that quarter alone, and. It's gonna be without Nurkic, they don't really have a really good rebounder. I really like Zach Collins. I think he was a great pick when they when they took him. Shout out Coach Sass, you remember me saying this. And I think he's gonna be a really nice piece for them. But without Nurkic, Cantor is a better offensive rebounder than he is defensive rebounder. And Collins is young, and they didn't play Myers Myers Leonard. So I think rebounding is gonna be a huge issue for them because it felt like every single time that they got a Big rebound or any defensive rebound that fourth quarter it was Dame Lillard, and he's the he's the point guard, you know.
0: Yeah, can't, I mean, Canner's playing with a separated shoulder, and from my my vantage point, it looks like he's shying away from contact. Just in terms of rebounding and yeah. in terms of bumping with Jokic, he's he's not as physical as he usually is. But that that's the other thing I wanted to hit on, Jokic. There was a lot of questions regarding how he would fare in the postseason, just because you know he's this lumbering big man. He's not in the best shape. He gets somewhat abused when you can really concentrate and try to abuse him in the pick and roll. He's been sensational in the playoffs. The game has slowed down. Yeah, he's been he's awesome. their offensive hub. Everything runs through him. He had a he had a pretty good game last night. I mean, he definitely filled up the box score. But in game one, he was fantastic. He had thirty seven, nine, and six. And you know, as I said, there were a lot of questions with him heading into the postseason. And I think he's actually been better he he was he had 4 he had a game with 40 plus against the spurs but the whole series for the nuggets it was they just something seemed a little off but after just watching the first two games between the the blazers and the and the nuggets i think when the when the playoffs come about and you know jokic is there he can be relied upon just as any other superstar yes he's a center but he's a ball dominant player which you know the ball is going to go through him he's kind of their offensive hub and i'm not sure he, he, they do a lot of like dribble handoff action, so a lot of his assists are not necessarily like he's not diming people up, but everything's running through him and he's getting people open. And I think the concerns surrounding Jokic and his ability to perform in the postseason, I think you know that's not they're not even worth talking about anymore.
1: I mean, the thing that I love about watching the Nuggets and especially. Jokic is that I just love when he gets a defensive rebound, everyone just goes up the court, and Jokic just takes it. And I think that that's just a really fun way to play, and it just speaks to how good he is and how much trust the whole team has in the way he can pass. My main concern about just Jokic is he still, I think, hesitates when it's time for him to take over. And there's moments during Game two, and there's moments during the series where you would want to give him the ball and say, "Go get us a, a bucket," and that's just not necessarily his first inclination to how to play. He could definitely do it, but that's not his first choice. So I think that as it, as time goes on, he'll he'll learn that more. But I think that that's gonna that's gonna hurt them again because when they when the they couldn't make a shot in the first half, you would have loved to see Jokic be like, "Give me the ball, I'm gonna go get us a bucket or draw a foul."
0: Right. That that's a good point. So, these two Western Conference series, if you could amend your picks prior to the series, would you would you change them or do you feel comfortable with the predictions that you made?
1: I'm pretty comfortable. I I probably overvalued the Warrior uh the the Rockets going into this series. I I said Warriors in 7. Now it feels like maybe Warriors in 5. Uh it's maybe just the games and I I thought the Blazers were going to beat the Nuggets, so no. I wouldn't change it
0: yeah me neither I had Warriors in six I think that's I still feel pretty confident that the Rockets are going to get a couple and then I had Blazers in six and to be honest I wouldn't be shocked if it was Blazers in five just because I I do not see Denver winning in Portland and then coming back home three one I just think Portland will take care of business so I, I would probably say Portland in five and um yeah, so that's that with the Western Conference. Let's take a break, and we will come back and break down the two Eastern Conference series.
1: So, Kelly, now as we're looking towards the Eastern Conference, we got CELT, Celtics, Bucks 1-1 going back to Boston. What have been your main takeaways from from the first two games?
0: So in game one, the Celtics win by 20-plus. Then in game two, Milwaukee wins by 20-plus. And, you know, Giannis has hit five threes. So if you would have told me that before the series, I would have been like, wow, he's having his way. But watching the action, he's having to settle for threes because – Al Horford's doing a really good job of preventing him from getting to the basket. And I mean, we spoke about Russell Westbrook last week and how it would be great if the Thunder could kind of replicate Milwaukee's model and just surround him with shooters as they have with Giannis. And Giannis has been surrounded by shooters, but Al Horford's done such a great job that they haven't really had to help much off of the shooters. And so, I mean, even giving Giannis that space and just a dare, basically daring Giannis to shoot has been a good formula for the Celtics. And I'm just, I mean, after game one, I know Paul Pierce said, oh, series over. No way. Milwaukee's coming back. That was ridiculous to say. I still think Milwaukee's in the driver's seat, but I do think how the Celtics played in game one, there's you know, definitely some things they could take away and, and bring back to Boston.
1: Yeah. One of the one of the notes I highlighted coming into this series was the Brad Stevens versus Giannis matchup, and I was really impressed, especially in Game One, of how they talk about building up walls and transitions. Basically, just means you get guys back and you block off the paint, and they did an incredible job in Game One of not letting Giannis get all the way to the basket. And I give a lot of credit, obviously, to the to the players for executing the strategy, but also Stevens because he's kind of been the guy who has been able to do that really well and stop Giannis and Ben Simmons and dynamic transition players. You're talking about Giannis with the jumper. He, he made a bunch of threes the first couple games. So, so if he's got a lot of confidence in that, it's going to be really dangerous. And I wouldn't go so far as to say the Bucks are in the driver's seat because the Celtics really lost game two in that third quarter when they just had, when they just had, had a terrible stretch. And... That game was really close before the wheels kind of fell off where they just had a bunch of turnovers and missed shots. I think it was like twelve or thirteen straight possessions with a turnover or a miss. And the Bucks took advantage. So all credit to them. So I think it's a bit of a stretch to say that the Bucks are in the driver's seat going in. I think that this is a really even series.
0: Going into the series, I thought a lot of this rested on the shoulders of, of Gordon Hayward and just you know, he was kind of the X Factor or the swing man in terms of turning this series. And in game two, he was, he had a minus 30 um, plus minus. So that's definitely not good. And just looking at, you know, some of the role guys, Jason Tatum is averaging four and a half points per game in this series. That's terrible. He, he kind of made a name for himself and broke out onto the scene last year in the playoffs going almost, I mean, you could argue toe to toe with LeBron in the Eastern Conference finals. And, you know, he's been, I mean, we talk about the Anthony Davis trade package and he's tossed around as a centerpiece he's certainly not playing like one just from the Celtics perspective as a whole this is how it goes a lot of times you know the road team wins game one and they're thinking oh we we know we did our job we we at least got a split and then game two shows up and they definitely went cold in the third quarter like you mentioned but I I didn't feel like they came out and you know played this game with the same intensity and same fire that they did in game one
1: no not at all and they're just a weird team, man. The The Celtics are just weird because they have so much talent that yet they don't play together. They don't really seem like they like each other. They're, they're just a weird team that when, I, when things don't start to go their way, it feels like it all falls apart. And I just wonder if they're just so talented that they'll be able to s- squeak out this series over seven games.
0: To me... Al Horford is one of the most valuable players in all of the playoffs just because of what, what he brings to a team. I mean, in game one, he was setting those, he was basically picking and popping with Kyrie for the entire second half. And you were either allowing Kyrie to get to the rim or a wide open three pointer for Al Horford. And he was not missing, but just, you know, he gets paid a lot of money. So I think a lot of people expect him to, you know, be this superstar. That's not who Al Horford is, but he's going to, he's solid at pretty much everything. And, You can make the argument he's the most valuable Celtic. But from Milwaukee's perspective, I'm just interested to see how Eric Bledsoe plays because he was not very good in game one. He had six points. Then in game two, he had 21 points. And if you remember, David, last year when they played the Celtics, Terry Rozier, I think, called him Drew Bledsoe. Yep. And, you know, so there's a little bit of bad, bad blood there. So. You know, when he goes to Boston, how does he play? How do the role players play? Because in in a lot of senses, this is a a series of, I mean, they're not not role players necessarily because a lot of them, I mean, Chris Middleton was an all-star, but you have Kyrie on one side, you have Giannis on the other side, and then you have a bunch of these guys who are basically the supporting cast, and which supporting cast plays better is going to largely determine who wins this game. And the last thing I want to say is, you know, Milwaukee's missing a guy who had a fifty forty ninety season malcolm Brogdon yeah he's he's so important, and I don't really feel like that's being brought up enough this guy he he's not an all star caliber player, but he's kind of a level below that and to be in a series like this where i mean Malcolm Brogdon is one of the best guard defenders in the n b a so to be missing him, I think. You know when he comes back, that's going to make a big difference for the Bucks, and you know the Celtics kind of underperformed all season, and that's I mean that's really been the story of their season. But I, I know you don't think Milwaukee's necessarily in the driver's seat, but if I was Milwaukee, I would really like the way things are turning turning out to be right now.
1: It's really interesting that that you mentioned Brogdon because I think it's really funny how obviously Kyrie and Giannis are both super important to their teams, but. When you ask the guys on those teams or their coaches, they all just make a huge deal of Al Hortford needs to be playing for us to be at our best, or Malcolm Brogdon. It. It's, a, it's a really interesting how, for these teams, how crucial every single player is to their whole team success. And if Brogdon's able to come back for the Bucks, I think that would be a big game-changer because he provides a level of stability, and he's, a, he's just another shot-maker.
0: Yeah, and I think Budenholzer... He's, he's a great coach, probably going to be coach of the year. He's almost playing these games in terms of his rotation like it's a, a regular season game. Like he's giving guys like like Pat Connaughton should not be playing 25 minutes in a playoff game. That's no, he no, should no, Like no, bu- no bueno. Like <laughs> Gian, Giannis, Giannis has to go from – he averaged like 33 minutes a game in the regular season in the first round. If, if need be, Giannis has to go 45-plus minutes. Like this is, this is your season – Giannis is 24 years old. If Giannis has to play the entire game, Giannis will play the entire game. Like, I know fatigue is real and it's a lot to demand that out of these guys. But, I mean, Sterling Brown's playing 24 minutes a game. Where did Sterling Brown go to... Like, I don't even know who Sterling Brown is. And this guy's playing half of a... a Essentially a must-win playoff game. And I know you can't just, you know, give all... You can't... This is not a video game and you can turn the fatigue down and... Everyone is just, you know, on full tilt for the whole game. Like I know there's human elements to this, but I really think you have to ride some of these guys and there's no reason why Chris Middleton, Eric Bledsoe, and Giannis can't be playing forty forty plus minutes.
1: Yeah. I totally, totally agree with you. They and I think they'll be, you know, as the series goes on, they don't wanna they don't wanna put all their cards on the table yet. And I think going back to the Wards, it's really interesting. Kerr just said, we're going to play our best lineup from the beginning. And I don't think the Bucks are, are doing that yet. I think they're trying to steal as many minutes as possible from those guys so that in game six and game seven, Yaz has, has enough left in the tank to go 46 minutes.
0: Yeah. All right. So to me, the most interesting series has been the 76ers and the Raptors just because of what's at stake on both sides. You've got Kawhi is a pending free agent. Then on the other side, you've got Jimmy and Tobias Harris. And there's just, you know, there's a lot in flux with both the Raptors and the 76ers. So thus, there's a lot at stakes in this series. What have kind of been, you know, some of your thoughts or or takeaways from the first two games up in Toronto?
1: So my big takeaway, and this is something I, I I want to talk to you about. When I watch the 76ers, it's obvious Embiid is their best player. Not really – you can't really argue that. But who's their second-best player? Is Ben Simmons their second-best player or is it Jimmy Butler? And can you win with Simmons as your number two guy?
0: That's, it's so funny because it's gone from can you win with Simmons as your number one guy to now we're asking can you win with Ben Simmons as your number two guy. And to be honest, I don't even know the answer to that question. He's, he's – I don't want to say infuriating but frustrating to watch play just because here's a guy – who he has the total package. He has everything size, skill, speed, dexterity. Like and he's ambidextrous essentially in a basketball player. The one thing he can't do, which is the most valued skill in the NBA right now, is shoot. So watching him is just so frustrating and seeing what Jimmy Butler did in game 2, I feel like Jimmy Butler's production and Tobias Harris's production, you know, one of the two is going to you know hopefully both for philly's sake but one of the two tends to have a good game and the other one just because of you know sheer volume and and the number of shots that can go around isn't going to get as many shots up and they find out early who's got the hot hand and kind of feed it but this season i think jimmy butler is more important to the 76ers than ben simmons i
1: would i would have to agree because butler obviously hit 30 in game two and kind of was the reason why they won with mb dealing with an illness and didn't play that well it's just really interesting because when you watch them play, it feels almost like a video game roster where they put together all this talent and didn't really know how it would fit all together and just said, we're just going to figure it out. And they yeah. haven't really figured it out of how to fit everyone together. And I just don't know where they go f- from here because I think the Raptors are, are going to win this series, but I just don't know where Philly goes after this because they tried this i don't think they'll get butler or harris back in free agency i just don't know where, where they go after this and i think that they're not going to win this series because just talk about what's going on on the court Kawhi is dominating Kawhi is the best player on the court he is he is playing like the best two-way player maybe i don't want to say the world but at least in the east he's the best two-way player right now and this is what everyone thought he would be at his best. He is playing that well. And when you throw in the fact that Pascal Siakam is playing really well, and when Lowry can make a shot, he's usually pretty good. And you have Marcus Sol. It's just, the Raptors are just really, really good. And it helps that Kawhi is dominating because when your best player dominates, you should win. And obviously, Embiid was, got, got sick, and so he couldn't play. He wasn't at the his peak of his powers, but... I think it's really going to come down to Kawhi versus Embiid because if Embiid can dominate the way Kawhi is dominating, it's a completely different story.
0: Well, Embiid hasn't been able to dominate because Marcus Sol has been a—he's just stonewalled him in the post. Like I've forgotten how good of a defender Marcus was, and I'm—he's—he's a—he's a big dude, he's heavy set guy, so he definitely throws his weight around. There's not many guys who had the ability to, you know, th- toss around Joel Embiid in the post. Gasol has done that, and he's. When you think about it, this is this is really the reason that Masai Ujiri, the the Raptors GM, traded for Gasol was specifically to guard Joel Embiid in the postseason. And through the first two games, Embiid definitely isn't right. You know, he he had some sickness or some you know gastrointestinal issue. His knee was a problem. I don't think he's in the best shape, and you know, those are all factors, but Gasol has stonewalled him and you speak of, you know, Kawhi and he's he's so much fun to watch. He just plays with absolutely no conscience and just, he, he just plays so hard. But I also think that's kind of starting to rub off. And I mean, Pascal Siakam was a very fine player before Kawhi got there, but just learning under Kawhi, I, I watch Siakam and I don't think of Kawhi, but Pas- Pascal Siakam plays so hard and it's not that he has such little skill, But a lot of it, he's he's scoring 20-plus points in in some of these games, and they're not really coming off skilled movements. It's just from playing hard. So when he's able to really, you know, I'm sure this summer and in summers to come, he's going to really work hard and and fine-tune his game. When he can put some polish on his offensive game, he's already a fantastic defender, the dude's going to be an all-star.
1: I mean, I don't want to call him Kawhi 2.0, because that's disrespectful to Kawhi, and Siakam's going to be his own player, but... When you watch Siakam now, it reminds you a lot of Kawhi when his first couple years on the Spurge is tre- tremendous defensive player. And as he's figuring out the offense, you're like, oh my God, this dude is going to be an all star and a foundational building block. And I really wonder if Kawhi sees this and says, hey, Siakam's going to be a guy I can team up with on a small deal. We could go get someone else too. And then just speaking to your Marcus Allpoint, he's playing great defense on Embiid, but. One of the reasons why the Sixers went and got Jimmy Butler is Jimmy Butler is supposed to be this really good defender who could guard the great wing scores in the East. So aren't you supposed to be doing a better job on Kawhi? Like Kawhi shouldn't be dominating this much if you're this max contract, defensive, first, lockdown defender type.
0: I mean, I think Jimmy's he's thinks he's this max contract, lockdown defender type, but I, I think he's not. And I think it's proving that he's not. He had a great game offensively in Game 2. In Game 1, Siakam and Kawhi obliterated Philadelphia, especially in the first half. Just straight up obliterated them. And there was nothing Jimmy could do to stop them. Ben Simmons, we we spoke about his offensive game. Defensively, I think he also has to do a better job. Jimmy, Jimmy can guard Kawhi. Ben Simmons has the prototype, the body, the speed. The lateral quickness to keep up with Kawhi, maybe that's something they look at. And you know, we we spoke about earlier is is Jimmy Philly's most or second most important player, or at least offensive player. I think. I mean, watching some of these games, JJ Redick, what he means to the Sixers. Like, if JJ Redick were to get hurt or something, the the sky would fall in Philadelphia. He means so much to them offensively, from a spacing standpoint, from the movement he provides off ball. He. I mean, he hits four or five three-pointers a game, not only in like situations where they need a bucket, but the, the level of difficulty on some of these shots are absurd.
1: And it's also, when you talk about JJ, is that he needs to make those shots for them to be successful. Like, if Reddick goes one for eight in a game, it's really hard for them to win because they don't have any other shooting, really. Like zero. Yeah, so it's... So if J.J. Redick is your X-factor and he's like, well, if he makes two threes compared to four or five, like it's going to be really hard for us to win. That's just not a great sign for your team when you supposedly had four all-stars.
0: And and another not great sign, like we spoke about Pat Connaughton getting minutes for the Bucs. That's really not a great sign. For the 76ers, if you're relying on Greg Monroe to not only play, but to get you buckets in the postseason, that's problematic. So... These two, conf- or these two series in the Eastern Conference, similarly to how we did in the Western Conference, if you could amend either of your predictions prior to the series, would you do so?
1: No. I, no. I had Bucks in seven, and I've, I think I had Raptors in six or seven. I, I still think both those teams are going to win. I'm, I'm a little more concerned about, uh, about the Bucks though.
0: Yeah, I had Bucks, Bucks and Six, Raptors and Six, and I think both. I'm, I'm going to stick with both, but like you, I'm more concerned about the Bucks than I am the Raptors.
1: Yeah, because at, at least with the with the Celtics, if it's close in the last ninety seconds of a game, I just think Kyrie Irving is going to make all those shots, and I don't really know who on the Sixers. Like, I'm not afraid of anyone on the Sixers in the last minute of a game, the same way that I'm afraid of Kyrie.
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess Jimmy would be that guy for the Sixers, but I'm, I totally agree with you. Like, Uncle Drew, in, the, in crunch time, we, we talked about this earlier. He and Dame are the two dudes in the NBA that when they take the shot, you're surprised when it doesn't go in.
1: Yeah, it's a, the it's a three guys on the Warriors, Curry, Clay, Durant, Dame, and, and, uh, and Kyrie, where you're surprised. And Kawhi's almost there, too.
0: For sure. Let let's put a bow on this, Dave, just to wrap up. What are you looking at over these next couple of days?
1: Yeah. Uh James Harden says that after game two he could barely see. So uh vision is extremely important in basketball. Seeing the hoop is really important. Uh <laughs> it'd be really interesting to see uh what what he does on on Saturday night in game three. Hopefully he'll be able to see because if he can't, the Rocks have no chance, but Hey, he missed his first three shots when, when he could see in game two, and then he scored like twenty five, twenty six points when he couldn't see. So, so we'll see how much vision vision actually affects him.
0: Yeah, that that's something to keep an eye on. And the other thing I'm just keeping an eye on is how because these a lot of these series are are one one when they when they go back to where they began. Are they you know are these teams able to get a split? Because if you know, if Milwaukee goes to Boston and drops two, that, that's, that's a tough look. And if Toronto goes to Philly and drops two, that's a tough look. So I think it's vital for these teams to regain home court. And, uh, you know, we'll look and see if they can do so.
1: Yeah, and the last thing I want to say is I just really don't like how much time off these teams are getting in the second round. Like, Warriors-Rockets game two was Tuesday night, and then they don't play until Saturday. That's so much time off where if I'm the Warriors, I'm upset about it because the Rockets get to recover. They get more time to figure it out. And if you're the Warriors, you're in a groove. You're like, hey, le- like, let's get this thing going. Let's play game three as soon as possible. And the same thing with these other series. There's just so much time off that I think it disrupts the flow.
0: Yeah, I agree with that. And, I mean, more basketball, i, I never complain about that. So just, you know, you gotta you got to satiate the fans' appetite, and we just want basketball every day. So just give it to us,
1: please. Give the people what we want.
0: That'll do it for this episode of the Double Double. Thank you, everyone, for listening. If you wouldn't mind, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Five stars would be much appreciated. Also, we're thinking about doing a mailbag episode where listeners write in and send questions. I think we could have some fun with that. Our email account is double double four zero two. 402 at gmail.com and we also have a twitter account dbl underscore dbl podcast is the twitter handle so you can give us a follow there thank you everyone for listening take care and make it a great day